Brian McClanahan Show, episode 358. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. And you do get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. Plus, I've got 12 courses there for you to purchase. So if you'd like this podcast free of charge, you can go to McClanahan Academy, purchase one of the classes that keeps this podcast going. Helps keep the podcast going anyways. And also, you get great stuff out of it. I mean, it's not like you're just giving me some money for nothing. You're getting a great course or two or 12, right? So going out there and purchase those courses. You can also go to... Uh, brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support or click on that support tab while you're at my webpage. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. Get your Brian McClanahan show book played if you want my autograph of one of my books. You can purchase one of my books. My newest one is Southern Scribblings, 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. It's a great book. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. A lot of great ways to support the show, and the best way to support the show, of course, is to share it with your friends on social media, rate this podcast wherever you get your podcast, let people know that you're thinking locally and acting locally, and that you're interested in the show, because word of mouth and organic growth is the best way to do it. All right, well, let's talk about the topic and wrapping up the week this week with a little something that Donald Trump said that I found interesting, and I'm going to talk about it not because of what Trump thinks about this, but because... I think that what's happening here, and I've said this before recently, that 2020, the 2020 election is about American history. It really is about the interpretation of the American past. What does that mean? I mean, when you look at those who are rioting in Portland or other places around the United States, you look at what's happened uh, in the last uh, several months after the COVID pandemic or outbreak or whatever you want to call it, whether it is a pandemic or not. But when you look at all the things that have happened, What's at stake here is the soul of America. Now, I don't use that lightly because uh, I think that you know sometimes we get into uh, you know hyperbole and we just use words and they don't. But I do think that because history is on the ballot in 2020, uh, this is a uh, an important thing to talk about. Now, I don't say this is the most important election in American history. We could say that about so many different elections. And I know some people, what's the most important election in American history? Well, I mean, clearly 1860 was more important than this one. I don't think that we're on, now, I mean, maybe 10 years from now, maybe this election does become the most important election. I have no idea. I don't know what's going to happen a year from now. I don't know what's going to happen if Joe Biden wins or Donald Trump wins. I know that the left is trying to blackmail the American voter and saying, if you don't vote for us, the riots are going to continue. Though, on the other hand, if you do vote for them, then those people are going to get in power. And they're going to have influence. So do we want to be blackmailed or not? This is the point. Okay, so uh, 
but I want to talk about the something that Trump said in a rally that I, that I found interesting. This is from the Washington Times. He said, Trump says movement against Confederate statues is aimed at America's guts. Now, this is the headline. He... He doesn't necessarily necessarily say Confederate monuments, but he does say monuments. So let's see let's see what the article says. President Trump told a Southern audience on Tuesday night that the left's cancel culture is wrong to eradicate Confederate statues, vowing they'll never take away our past. Speaking to thousands of supporters at the Winston-Salem Airport in North Carolina, Mr. Trump said U.S. Skill tr- skill, school children deserve a patriotic education. Quote: The first thing they liberals do is they want to take your history away. Mr. Trump said that's why the Monuments and the statues, they want to knock them down. The first thing they do is take away your guts. They take away your statues. They take away your heroes. They take away your great generals. They take away your past. Now, he doesn't necessarily use the term Confederate there, so they're implying that because he's in North Carolina, this is what he's talking about. But then Trump goes on. He said, and I said it was going to happen. I said they started off with generals and colonels and others that nobody had ever heard of, and I I thought that was bad. And then they went up a little bit and I said, somebody is going to go to, someday it's going to be Robert E. Lee. Someday it's going to be Washington. Someday it's going to be Lincoln. Someday it's going to be Jefferson. Someday it's going to be Benjamin Franklin. It's all of them. It's all of them. They want to take away your past. Then he vowed, they'll never take away our past. We'll teach our children to love our country, honor our history, and always respect our great American flag. Now, is he talking about Confederate monuments there? Or is he just talking about monuments in general? I mean, this is, This is even the Washington Times being a little misleading about what Trump is saying here. I don't know which never-Trumper was writing this because, of course, you get a bunch of conservatives even that, he said Confederate. Uh, So we have these snowflakes that uh, get their feelings hurt and gets triggered, you know, by this stuff. But, I mean, certainly maybe he's talking about Confederate monuments in North Carolina. I don't know. You've got a lot of people in North Carolina that don't like Confederate monuments. So, but this is important because... American iconography is representative of something. If you look at the list that he says there, it's Lee, it's Washington, it's Lincoln, it's Jefferson, it's Franklin. What do all these things represent? And so in that, I want to have a 20-minute discussion about the American tradition, the best I can. Now, of course, I get into a lot of this stuff at McClanahan Academy. But I want to have a 20-minute discussion or so about what this American iconography addresses. You see, I wrote an essay years ago entitled, We Are All Jeffersonians, or, you know, and I think that's what these statues represent in some ways, even though Jefferson himself would have been against this stuff. So I, I wrote down, I scribbled down a few things that I wanted to address in this and talk about them. The first is the American commitment to individualism rather than collectivism. Now, I've had a talk on here before about American liberty, and you have different visions of American liberty depending on where you were in the colonial colonial North America, in the colonial period. If you were in New England or if you were in the South, you were in the the, uh, mountains, you're in the borderlands, if you're in the mid-Atlantic states, What liberty meant to different people, and of course, I think David Hackett Fisher has done the best job of anybody ever in talking about this cultural aspect of America. And he gets into liberty and how people looked at liberty. And we'll talk about liberty in a minute, but 
certainly there was, it doesn't matter if you were north or south or borderlands or mid-Atlantic, as Americans set foot on the shores here, these British, these English subjects, and then later the generations of Americans that followed, there was a commitment to individualism, rugged individualism. De Tocqueville talked about this, how he'd come across a cabin that was half-completed in the West, and then somebody would start building it, they'd just quit and move on and build another one. Because, you see, it was that restless individualism, trying to do better for yourself, that I think defined America more than just about anywhere else in the world. You can say this is a type of American exceptionalism, and I think we use that term again. That becomes hyperbole and what we mean by that. But Americans had to cut out a civilization in a frontier in a way that no one else ever had to do. I mean, this was... Uh, it, it was it didn't matter if you were talking about you know Spaniards who arrived here or Frenchmen who arrived here or Englishmen who arrived here. They were cutting out a civilization based on the old order, but of course adapting to new circumstances that was different. And Americans embraced that kind of individualism, the, the I-can-do-anything attitude. You can be anything you want to be. I mean, this is, this is Andrew Carnegie in some ways, who was embracing that as he was writing about it. The Scotsman, writing his little dime store novels uh, in, the, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But uh, that commitment to the individual, that commitment to individual liberties, for the most part, now I know if you look at the Puritans, it wasn't the case. They were much more interested in some ways in collectivism, the community over the individual. But they all embraced a type of individualism and success that Americans still hold on to to this day. And if you look at the statues that he mentioned here, <clears throat> you look at Ben Franklin, for example. I mean, Ben Franklin embodies this, this individualism. So does Jefferson. So does Washington. So does Lee. And in many ways, so does Lincoln. I mean, look, Lincoln was a rags-to-riches story. I mean, here's a guy that uh, was essentially came from nothing. I mean, his father wasn't anything that important. Rose up through the ranks, had declared bankruptcy a couple of times. I mean, he's not someone that came with a silver spoon. In fact, Americans were disdainful of that. They liked the guy that came from the bottom to the top. They wanted that rags riches story. They wanted the bootstrap story. Americans have embraced that. What you're seeing in Portland and other places are people that don't embrace that. They're all victims with a capital V. They are oppressed because somebody else is doing that to them, so you need to use power to take the way that and so that they can be something else. Whereas these Americans that arrived in the frontier, I mean, they did it themselves. Now, I know that you know, there's, there's, there's exceptions to everything I'm talking about here. But generally, this is the attitude that Americans had. And that's what these statues in so many ways represent. Even a statue like Martin Luther King, the, great, the, the big statue that they've built for him in D.C. And I'll talk about that in, in another way. Um, I mean, this is, this is the underdog story. Americans like the underdog. All of these people in many ways were underdogs. Look, Benjamin Franklin was an underdog. Now, you could say maybe Jefferson and Washington weren't underdogs. Robert E. Lee wasn't an underdog. Lee certainly was an underdog, though. 
in the war, so was Washington and Jefferson. So they, they were underdogs too in the war. We were the underdogs in 1775 and won, right? This idea of America's great, uh, the way we conceptualize it now because we won World War II, right? America wasn't the underdog in World War II. We had the greatest industrial power in the world at our disposal. We should have won that war. But of course, that rallied people around uh, you know, this type of American nationalism that was built by Lincoln and then you know, successive presidents and others uh, you know, added to. But uh, certainly, this idea of American individualism, and if you look at what Americans did during that war, I mean, just take the industrial output and the way that Americans rallied around it and all the innovations and everything that's happened, this is what we love about America. It's the innovator. It's the people that rise on their own to do something great. These are the people that we really admire. And that gets into the second point, liberty versus rights. These are two distinct things, and I think that sometimes we forget that. Now, Americans are committed to both in many ways. We are committed to natural rights. We're also committed to individual liberties. But you can have liberties without rights, and you can have rights without liberties. You can have the right, the natural right, to free speech, but the government can take away your liberty to do so. You still have the right, but you just don't have the liberty anymore. On the other hand, you can have a liberty to speak freely, but the government can say you don't have the natural right to do it. So what's the common denominator in all that? Well, it's the government. It's the collective saying you have this or you don't. Now, natural rights means that you have these rights, and of course, the idea will be that government cannot infringe upon those rights. When you look at what Jefferson said about, you know, or say George, let's go with George Mason, because I think we bastardized Jefferson too much with the, with the Declaration. Well, let's go to George Mason and John Locke. You have a right to life, liberty, and property. A right to those things. So government should not infringe on those things. Essentially what they're saying there is that government could infringe on those things, but because you have a right to it, they should not infringe on those things. And that we try to restrict government from doing that, the collective from infringing on the individual. Now, it didn't mean that every American believed this. If you look at, again, New England liberty is more collective than individual. They didn't care about trampling on individual liberties if it meant that the community, the liberty of the community, could be preserved over the individual. So if it would be better for you not to speak in the interest of the community, they would keep you from speaking. This is the kind of liberty that we're looking at in America right now. It's not what the majority of the founding generation thought about liberty and rights, but it certainly is this puritanical Yankeeism that we're getting in America. It's what is at the heart of all of these protests. It's a different type of liberty. They want to be free from you saying things they don't like because they think that's dangerous. They think that that's evil. They think whatever your term you want to do, that's racist, whatever it is. They want to be free from the pain of you saying something they don't like. 
It's emotional immaturity without question. The Puritans were emotionally immature. This type of puritanical liberty is emotionally immature. And it's not based on the traditional understanding of liberties which were passed down from the Magna Carta forward. You see, those people thought that the individual was more important than the community because the community could destroy those things and then that was dangerous to society as a whole. But we also have to remember that liberties were held by freemen only. I mean, the founding generation did think this, right? I mean, if you were a freeman, if you were a citizen, you had liberties, you had rights, even a non-citizen had rights, but their liberties could be abridged. It wasn't universal that these things were given. Citizens, freemen, were entitled to these things. Citizenship had meaning. And virtually every civilization in the history of man thought this way. We're the, in some ways, the United States is the only civilization that uh, has this concept that just because you set foot on the shores here, you, have, you, you then get everything that every other citizen walking around in the U.S. has. Now, if you look at Blackstone, he talked about this. As soon as you stepped on the shores of England, then you became an Englishman. I mean, there was some discussion of this. And so you could say that some of this is transferred from the English understanding of rights and liberties. Uh, but regardless, uh, I mean, there is a, a certain rejection of the history of Western civilization, this idea of once you set foot on shore of the United States, that you get these things. Because I think to a man, the founding generation generally didn't believe that. Uh, there, were, there were distinctions made, and we know that some of these distinctions we would find abhorrent today. But certainly there were distinctions made even among, say, a European arriving in America, that they would not have the same liberties and rights as an American citizen or as a citizen of a state, whatever the case may be. So if you look at these individuals again, and you look at liberties, I mean, you look at what the list is here. Robert E. Lee certainly uh, would be one who, and this would be controversial to say, but and but Southerners said it, they were fighting for the liberty of self-government. There's, there's an amount of liberty here. And, and uh, even you know, Gary Gallagher and uh, James McPherson and others have said that the Confederate soldier was fighting for their own liberty against enslavement, enslavement by a foreign power, which would be the United States. So there certainly was an element of liberty to that. Washington, Jefferson absolutely believed in these things. Ben Franklin... Uh, and there were many who would make the case that Lincoln was fighting for a certain type of American liberty as well. Now, I would be harder on Lincoln than most because I think that Lincoln was fighting in the position of the empire, of the British, rather than fighting for self-determination or self-government or liberty in that way. But that said... Bringing up Lincoln brings up another part of the American uh, character, which I think is that people on both the left and the right believe in to a point, and that's populism. Those on the left think that everybody, because you breathe, should vote, right? I mean, it's you breathe, so you vote. I mean, this, this is universal suffrage is that kind of populism. Trump 
is a different kind of populist, but certainly a populist in a lot of ways. He flatters the public. You know, this is about you. This is, you know, you vote for me. This, you're going to, I mean, there's, there's a certain amount to it. You're great. Let's make America great. There's a certain amount of populism to that. You could say this is all tied back to Jeffersonianism, where the, he trusted the people's capacity to govern, whereas Hamilton did not. Though Hamilton, even in some ways, was a populist. I mean, all these people believed in representative government, which at some core level is populist. It's not monarchist. Uh, you could make the case that there certainly were members of the founding generation that might shade toward monarchy. But most of them believed in some element of popular government, so they were all populists in a way. And Americans have generally been committed to that. Now, we can talk about the dangers of democracy, the dangers of 50 plus, 50% plus one, and what that actually does, and how that can destroy society. And we're seeing razor-thin majorities in American elections. And so half the population is going to be irritated that the other half is controlling what they do. That certainly gets into this argument of liberty or freedoms or rights. But I'll talk about that in a second and how the founding generation dealt with that and how everybody across the board generally believes this in some way or another, even if they're on the left or the right. But populism at its core is part of the American value system. Uh, and when you look at, again, the list here, Robert E. Lee. If you want to talk about a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, you're looking at the Confederate government. It elected through conventions, which is conventions of the people. It elected conventions. Those conventions decided to withdraw from the Union. That was perfect popular government. And, of course, the argument against that, well, but slaves didn't vote and women didn't vote. Well, they didn't vote really in most of the northern states either. There only five states in the north that allowed blacks to vote, and women didn't vote in any of them in any type of quote-unquote national election. So it's the same. I mean, this, this is idiotic. It's an idiotic argument based on emotion when you make that argument. The people that could vote voted to leave the Union. And the women were as committed in the South as the men. I mean, this is something that people don't really realize, but they were. You look at Jefferson, Washington, Franklin, of course. You talk about popular government. Washington wanted to avoid any, any tinge of monarchy. Jefferson went to extremes to try to show that we had a popular government. Franklin, certainly interested in populism, wearing his coonskin cap to get a portrait made. He didn't wear a coonskin cap, but this is what... The, I, the image of America was, it was Daniel Boone in France. And then Lincoln making the Gettysburg Address saying, we have government of the people, by the people, for the people, right? So he's using this populist language. And we have things like fireside chats and all these other things throughout history, town hall meetings. All of this stuff has at its very core this local populism. It's local, it's small. This is, brings me to my next point. And that's the size of government. Americans generally believe in small local government. But the problem is we are fighting a national system. If you look at the way the Constitution was designed, it's, it's small, it's local. The, the central authority could handle foreign policy and trade, and that was it. Everything else should be handled by the states. Everything else should go there. North and South people thought this. Connecticut didn't want to be governed by South Carolina, and 
Virginia didn't want to be governed by Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania didn't want to be governed by Georgia, and Georgia not by Pennsylvania. And so you had this across the United States. Delaware, three counties, didn't want to be governed by Pennsylvania. It's why it seceded from Pennsylvania. You had a general attitude of local authority, small is better, small is beautiful. That was the general attitude of the founding generation. There were nationalists without question, but generally in the founding generation, this is what you had, and Americans have believed that ever since. Suspicion of central authority, suspicion of government. And I go back to Martin Luther King. A lot of people don't realize, but I mean, look, King was being spied on by the FBI, right? I mean, so you look at what, <laughs> at what was happening with King. It was a strong central authority that was working against him. Every civil rights leader today in the United States, whatever that constitutes, uh, whatever that means in modern America, should be suspicious of the central authority. But what's happened is, they've, in many cases, they've dropped that because they think the central authority is going to be their friend, when in reality, it's never your friend. It's never your friend. The central authority is never there for you. If you have the reins of power and you decide... You're going to use that power to your advantage. What happens when you're not in power? What happens then? Well, you're abused. And this is why every American, for the most part, has been suspicious at one time or another of central authority. I mean, look at the left. Look at the, in, the, these communists that are running around in the streets of Portland and other places. They're suspicious of the center. They think that Donald Trump is their greatest problem. It's a suspicion of central authority. Now, they want to control that central authority. Don't get me wrong. These people want it. They want that power. Nancy Pelosi and all these other morons running around in D.C., they want the power. This is why they constantly complain when they don't have power. This is what Calhoun pointed out in his disquisition. They're going to use the Constitution to their advantage when they're not in power. Once they get it, they don't care about the Constitution. But Americans at the grassroots level, you and I, the, 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 the schmuck sitting down here, uh, in the, at the bottom who don't have any power. We do. We are concerned about the power of the center. Even our local government, we're concerned about these things. You know, the town where I live, uh, you've got college kids walking around in groups of five or more. So you've got a bunch of Yankees in this town trying to enforce mask mandates for these college students who are just hanging out with their friends outside to wear a mask. Well, that's local power exercised in a way that infringes on liberties. You see, so you have to, I mean, there's always a tension here between these things. But all of these statues, all this iconography, all these things represent the suspicion of central authority. This is certainly what Lee does. Jefferson, Washington. Now, Washington was a nationalist, but everyone claimed Washington. You could find in Washington suspicion of central authority. Benjamin Franklin? I mean, the way the neocons describe Lincoln, he was the most ardent patriot of not, of, against, against central liberty in America, or against central authority in America. This guy was, I mean, he was fighting oligarchy in the South, and we know that's a stupid argument. But regardless, these are the people that Trump said. These are the people that he talked about. And when you think about this, I mean, this is why this, this appeals across the board. Suspicion of central authority is an American tradition. It was a tradition. New England didn't. I mean, New England didn't want central authority to infringe on their ability to, say, have a state-sponsored Puritan church. 
They didn't want it. Southerners didn't want to be governed by New England. I mean, nobody wanted a central authority unless they were in power, you see. Then they thought they could use it to their advantage, which is why the Constitution was designed to limit that, at least parts of it. Why the Articles of Confederation was written the way it was. One of the greatest coups in American history is the Constitution, because originally we had a government that was uh, opposed to central, strong central authority. So I would say that these statues represent in many ways these things. I mean, the Confederate statues certainly represent that. Opposition to central authority, opposition to one-size-fits-all, top-down government. Regardless of what people like Stephanie McCurry and others would say, that, oh, they created a strong state. The Confederate Constitution says otherwise, and I know it's abused, but see, this is the problem with government. It gets abused. We know this happens, okay? But when you look at the foundation of it and the principles behind it, it's there. Americans don't like strong central authority. Americans believe in liberties and rights, but more importantly, liberties, because you can have rights but not liberties, so they want to ensure that government protects the liberties that come from the rights. If you have a natural right to life, well, they want to protect that with legislation ensuring that you have that Right is protected, and of course, the liberties that come with that. The liberty to have property, the liberty to say what you want, the liberty to protect yourself, to own a firearm. These are the kind of things that come out of that. So, I wanted to talk, I mean, because it's just, we have these phrases that are used, but we don't really get to the heart of what's happening here. And all these things are under attack. The collective is on the warpath. The collective wants to make sure that these liberties go away. They want to make sure that we have collective rather than individual government. And that's what it's about. The collective, the community over the individual. Unless, of course, it's them, and then they're hypocritical. But that's a certain type of Puritan liberty as well. Privileges come from being and moving up the ladder, so to speak. If you're in power, if you're in the it crowd, well, then those things don't apply to you. Popular government, I mean, these are things that we all generally believe in in America, and that's, again, what these statues and other things represent, which is why they have to come down. It's not about taking away your past. It's about distorting the past in, uh, in the name of something new, which is dangerous for American society. All right, so went a little long on this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And again, just to mention, if you... Uh, if you want me five days a week, go on out to abbevilleinstitute.org and I talk about all things Southern there. It's different stuff. So that would be the fifth day podcast, abbevilleinstitute.org. I do their podcast once a week. So with that said, this is it for this week. I hope you have a good weekend. If you don't catch the other podcast, I hope you have a good weekend. I will see you next week. See you on Monday. See you then. Have a good weekend. (laughs) 